You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Episode 138, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Eric Larson, a little different intro today just because I'm on vacation and I'm running behind and, you know, it's just vacation. It's summer. So apologize for things getting a little bit late, but I'm delighted to have Dr. Celia Egan with me today. You're going to learn a lot about weight management and not only weight management, but really the different models she's using to try and approach this. As we know in primary care, it's a hustle and bustle and hard to get those life changes that you really want to affect if you're a physician or if you're a patient, frankly, and want to have that contact with the physician that you're just not able to get normally. And so how do you do that in today's normal system? Well, basically, Dr. Egan is working with Dr. Bittner, who you met in episode 115 in her women's health clinic. They're going to team together, and they're going to just find an alternative way to take care of patients in a more personal way, in a way I think will be much more successful. So we're going to learn a little bit about the model. We're going to learn a little bit about weight management, ways to be successful, things that go into it, far more than I ever think about when I'm in the OR, since pretty much all I see with weight management is surgery, <laughs> right? So this is a totally different approach and way to think about things. Also did speak with uh, Dr. Jason Fung. You can listen to those episodes back in episodes 102 and 107, where we talked about intermittent fasting, which of course is weight control. So go back and check those out. Those will all be in the show notes. You can find those at theparadox.com slash 138. There you can find links to those and other things and the contact information if you're interested in getting hold of Dr. Egan. I'm almost just giddy having an opportunity to speak to someone in person as opposed to just over Zoom. So it's a nice change having someone in the studio. So uh, for those of you who normally watch in video, I apologize to not have video because I'm basically very Gen X and then I had the wrong video app running. So this is what happens. You don't have a full video team helping take care of things. And so anyway, it'll be up and running for the future episodes. You still get the YouTube version with just the audio. So apologize for that. And I'd like to briefly tell you about today's sponsor for the show, CareCloud. As a physician, you routinely check your patient's health. But when was the last time you checked the financial health of your practice? You could be needlessly losing money right now. Stop bleeding money. Get actual insights about your group's financial performance with a free, no-strings-attached assessment from CareCloud, a leader in medical billing solutions, EHR, and more. CareCloud has over 20 years' experience helping large and small providers boost profitability and has helped thousands of practices optimize their financial operations. Request your free revenue cycle assessment and learn more about your group's performance by visiting drpodcastnetwork.com slash carecloud. That's drpodcastnetwork.com slash carecloud. But without further ado, Dr. Celia Egan in a different way to manage weight in women. Enjoy. All right. Well, welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun and informative format through expert analysis. And today I'm joined in person, post-pandemic, 
sort of maybe almost post-pandemic. Almost hoping post, right? (laughs) With Dr. Celia Egan. Dr. Egan, thanks so much for joining the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Well, it's my pleasure. Um, So uh, we're going to talk today about weight management. We're going to talk about you as far as your journey, I guess, from where you were. I mean, we just spent a lot of time in the show talking about industrialized medicine, which is, I guess, the best way of saying the sort of the the mill, I guess, that lots of Mm -hmm. docs in. Uh, especially in primary care, mill, I like to call right. it. <laughs> the, the patient puppy mill. Uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's probably a good way of putting. It. You can tell I'm an anesthesia. I don't hear all these primary care terms. I'm sure you guys use that term yeah. all the time, yeah. right? <laughs> um, so let's go uh, briefly in your background. So you, um, you're internal medicine trained. Yep. And then you went and got a fellowship in weight management. So right? I just got board certified in weight management. Board certified. Yeah. So exactly what? Uh, what did you? So how does that training work? Like from yeah. So medicine? well, I had a unique situation where during my residency, um, one of our professors or attendings that was at our hospital was Dr. Louis Aruni, who's one of the former presidents of the Obesity Society. And honestly, like one of the grandfathers of obesity medicine, you know, someone that was sort of like, no, obesity is a disease. We need to treat it with medications. And um, he was an attending at Cornell and I had the privilege of being able to do a rotation with him. So an elective. Okay. So it wasn't particularly anything that I had on the radar, but I was a biochem major at university of Michigan. And after doing my rotation with him, it really opened my eyes to the biochemistry, the psychology, the pharmacology that was associated with obesity medicine. And it really stuck. And so after I did my rotation with Dr. Rooney, I was able to, um, attend our like weight management residency clinic so basically he ran a clinic with the residents and then we did weight management um through our residency like via kind of like a separate track so it was like a separate day that we saw patients for weight medical weight management if we wanted to so i did that for you know the last i think two year year and a half of our three-year residency and um and i really enjoyed it and uh after my residency because my husband was still in fellowship, I worked as a hospitalist for a period of time, kind of as we moved from New York to Chicago to the suburbs of Chicago. There in the suburbs of Chicago, I found um, a mentor who had a obesity medicine and primary care practice, a small practice, and we decided to work together. And from there, I got then I took the boards for obesity medicine, and we practiced medical weight management in a small private practice in the suburbs of Chicago. So board certified, <clears throat> but usually that's a fellowship trained program right i mean i feel like most board certification so how does that is that the acgme i mean how does that i i don't think there's the acgme accreditation but you it's a american board of obesity medicine okay so So you go to like several conferences and you sort of like an apprenticeship so it it's especially or subspecial that you basically fell into you kind of like it wasn't something you planned you never thought when you started your residency is it pretty typical that you have internal medicine physicians who who do this or are they a lot you're just primary Um, care like it's a, lot of, it's a lot of primary care doctors. It's a lot of gynecologists, um, okay. a fair number of surgeons, pediatricians, primary care specialists. Okay. And so yeah. people you look at and say, this is going to be part of my practice. I'm going to be a pediatrician and also help you know, focus. Yeah. Maybe my practice, I'll be the one who's get, they throw the obesity sort of patients at me. Well, I think that um, there's a big group of people that note that obesity is a huge problem and either for personal reasons or professional reasons through patient experiences they just want other answers to how how are we going to fix this and so how am I going to fix this for my patients and so then they just seek out these conferences they join the obesity medical association the obesity society and that's how they just get involved and that's how it sticks okay yeah 
And then when it comes to, I guess, you know, when you get to the obesity clinics and things like this, when you're Mm -hmm. training, you know, there's a lot that goes into obesity. I mean, obviously, right. I mean, you look at the chemistry, the, the, pathology, yeah. right, past mm-hmm. physiology, right, this pharmacology, there's nutrition. I mean, I imagine you're you're working some multidisciplinary clinic, right, when you're training. You've got dietitians and you've got nutritionists yeah. and I surgeons mean, and so psychologists, all this. Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of practice models that have had a lot of those things. They've never really, they've all been run through big complexes. A lot of them have kind of failed to stay in business, I think, because the overhead's so high. Sure. So a lot of smaller practice, I mean, you just basically learn to do all that counseling yourself, Right. Nutritional right. counseling, exercise counseling, um, you know, and then, of course, all the medications we are you, you get used to using and right and stay up to date on the current medications we use for weight loss. I mean, when I see it and this is just my brief experiences, I'm yeah. in an academic center, right? Yeah. when I'm doing my training and I don't see it in private practice. And so my, you know, just when I looked at multidisciplinary pain clinics. You don't really see many multidisciplinary pain clinics in private practice. I mean, I think yeah. there are some they have. Yeah. A psychologist, maybe, yeah. but you know, in the universities, they got people, you know, falling out of the woodwork mm-hmm. who do all these things because they're also they have their own fellowship, their own training, right? So yeah. you have all the people training for whatever it is, and so yeah. you, you have no shortage of labor, yeah. right, in an academic right. center. Where yeah. the private practice, you know, you have to pay for all these people, and they right. have to, or they have to pay right. for themselves in some yeah. way, right? It has to make business sense, yeah, in order to to make a run, right? Yeah, I, I think um, one big one big reason sometimes why it goes a bit awry is I think they lean very much on like physical therapy and and really trying to optimize exercise, which exercise and activity of course is important, but honestly you have to get the drugs right and your relationship with food right and the nutrition piece right first, and then kind of dive deep into the exercise portion of helping people lose weight. And so um, I think some of the programs that, well, the way that our private practice works is we spend a lot of time on counseling, you know, motivational interviewing, trying to make sure the drugs are all right for patients. And then we kind of outsource a lot of the physical therapy and kind of trying to optimize people from a, from a activity standpoint. Sure. So you don't have all that in-house You're You're referring out. Right. Right. You don't have a gym. A gym. I mean, <laughs> right? I think, yeah. So, I mean, I think like um, one of the hospital centers in, in the suburbs of Chicago had, had a gym and they tried doing that, but the overhead for a gym is just enormous, you know, and they had a pool and, and all those things, and it just it just never stuck and fly en- enough to like make it actually find like fiscally right. able. Well, there are lots of things that the hospitals do. I think in hospital systems where they try and put everything they vertically integrate everything, right? Like you say, mm-hmm. I'm going to take care of you from you know when you come out of your mom all the way to when you go to the nursing home and <laughs> yeah. head to the ground, right? Right. And you can't. You, I mean, you can do all those things, but oftentimes you can't be efficient doing all of them, right? Like it's like General Motors; they make the car, they design right. it. But they don't make the tires. They don't yeah. make a lot. They don't make any of the parts. They just right. put them all together. They just tell you what right. we need because they find people who are who specialize in tool die or whatever it is. Right. And so it's better to have a place where like, we've got a gym and we do all kinds of physical therapy because we can't just do physical therapy just for obesity, for instance, right? Well, yeah, and I think it's also very interesting how people want to be active is very different. Oh, sure. Very different, and even across generations, it's different. And so to be able to provide, to be able to know and say to a person, you're going to do this exercise plan, like exactly the way that I think you should do it. It just, it isn't patient centered and it's not realistic after having counseled many, many people on, (laughs) on how we can get them moving and strength training and stretching and a variety of different things. And so to like using your car analogy, it'd be like being like, we're going to make every part, part for every truck, every, 
you know, sedan, every compact car, every convertible and luxury. And it's like, it's just not feasible. Like that just doesn't make sense because everyone kind of comes in with a different level and expectation of what exercise and activity means to them and different needs that go into that. Sure. And I mean, taking the car analogy one step further, it's like Henry Ford, right? You can have any color you want so long as it's black, right? Right. Exactly. I mean, a little bit. And I think that's why sometimes, um, big systemic obesity medicine program sometimes fails. It's because it's, this is our exercise program. And it's like, not every, you gotta be a little flexible with some of these things that people come in with and the barriers that they have. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So the uh, listeners of the show would recognize that I talked to Dr. Uh, Dinah Bittner, mm-hmm. who will be your new partner in yep. a couple weeks mm-hmm. as we're recording this in late July. I'm trying to remember what month it is. Yeah, I know, right? Uh, uh, and uh, that was in episode 115 where she talked about perimenopausal mm-hmm. and um, menopausal women, I guess, and just doing with women's health. Yeah. And um, I also interviewed Dr. Jason Fung for mm-hmm. two interviews. One, uh, we talked about cancer, which is really not related at all to weight. I mean, sort of, I guess, because he would, uh, he would argue yeah. with, with growth and things, and obesity obviously leads yeah. to lots of cancers, a huge risk factor for lots yeah. of cancers. Uh, but then we talked about intermittent fasting initially mm-hmm. when, mm-hmm. when I first got interested in, in talking about things. So why don't you talk about what your, uh, I guess, when it comes to weight management, mm-hmm. what is it that you're doing to for patients? I mean, because, uh, you know, Fung's focus on intermittent fasting. Bittner obviously focuses... Maybe not specifically weight loss, but yeah. or weight management, yeah. but you know the sort of hormonal and sort of the yeah. other changes that yeah, happen. I, I think um, something that Diane and I very quickly recognized is that we both realized that you know to get people to be healthy, which is you know less menopause symptoms, helping people lose weight, which is you know some markers of health that women need a little bit of organization to it. And so that's one thing that we try to do for women is, is a way to explore ways that they're having barriers from being their healthiest. You know, a lot of women sort of know what to eat or maybe they don't know, you know, and, and helping them figure out what's preventing them from making those good food choices. Sometimes it's our relationship with food, right? We've been leaning, coping a little bit too much on eating, Sometimes it's just not understanding the different mechanisms and the biochemistry principles of nutrition. Um, sometimes it's just logistics, like, re- like really, how do I get this food? How do I cook it? How do I afford it, right? And so we are trying to basically find all these barriers and work with patients to bring them down in a realistic way. And, um, you know, a lot of people always ask me, you know, do you want to do weight management? Do you want to do primary care? And it's like, honestly, it's both right? Because sure. it's really hard to separate those two things out. Because a lot of the things that we do in primary care, which is trying to get people to eat healthy, trying to get people to move, trying to, you know, make sure that all their other risk factors are low, ends up being primary topics that we talk about in weight management. You know, I think another major aspect, of, which I've sort of already talked about was just coping. You know, how do we cope with stress? A lot of people drink and eat, right? That's kind of their main right. drink, drink, eat and sit, right? <laughs> and that's kind of their main coping mechanism. And we sort of through motivational interviewing, try to kind of figure those things out and kind of help people see a different, you know, pathway of coping. Maybe that's new medications, maybe that's a therapist, you know, there's different apps, books, resources that we use to kind of help people out. All right. You mentioned motivational uh, interviewing, interviewing yeah. twice now. I don't motivate anyone when I interview them, but yeah. <laughs> So uh, what, what exactly does that mean? Does that mean you're asking people questions in order to sort of move them in a certain direction or how, you know, how does I, it? I, I, 
think there's like very formal definitions in the uh, there psychology always are, right? world, right? <laughs> yeah, I sure. mean, I, I think of it more as getting patients to see sort of their own path. That's kind of how I like to okay. think about it. Because I think that, again, I can yell at people till they're blue in the face about that they need to lose weight and then they should be healthier and they should be exercised more. But I haven't seen that that's worked out too well. And a lot of people come feeling, a lot of women in particular leave feeling quite shameful, guilty of their habits that they have. And so kind of a different approach, which is great in private practice that you can use is you have the time to be able to kind of pull out different things in people's and women's goals and and uh, what they really want out of visits and what they really want out of the patient physician relationship. What do you so you mentioned time and I with and you talk to a primary care doc, unless they're in direct private care where they have a specific like, you know, long time period between patients. No one in primary care says they have a lot of time to work out these things and to flush things out. I mean, yeah, that that's why you left where you are, I imagine. Right. In some respects. Yeah. I, I think that was one reason. I think it's, um, one, I mean, once time in terms of actual length of time, like length of time with patients, and then it's time in terms of if I have a patient and I feel like they need to be seen right away, then I can sort of make that call and have them come in or do a quick telemedicine visit and organize things to get things done for get things done for my patients and from a time management standpoint. I mean, a lot of times I think you run into barriers of staffing and there's protocols and there's a lot of things that prevent you from quickly interacting with patients in a way that seems feasible. So I'm looking forward to private practice, one, having more time to spend with patients in the room, and then also just being a little bit more flexible with the time that I have. And if I need to see someone quickly, that I'm able to do that. Right. Well, and most people would say going private practice is not any different than being in a uh, large healthcare system, right? I mean, you're still working the same you're still working within the same system. You might be in, you're maybe your own boss in the sense that you are the one billing and coding and things like that, right? Yeah. So you can't possibly be going to this to just because you're going to private practice is not going to change where you're doing. It. You must have a different type of model that you're practicing, right? Because a normal private private practice for primary care is what 10, 15 minutes per patient counter, maybe twenty. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that we do have a little bit of a different model. We have some different payment models that. Um, membership models that kind of expand a little bit of our ability to have more time with patients okay. and make our time flexible. We also utilize a lot of technology. So we have an app that we work within and patients are able to communicate with us directly. And then we they can relay messages relatively quickly and we can talk back with them quickly in you know, a matter of minutes to hours versus sometimes days that it feels like to go through the chain of command. Um, I think a lot of it's just, you know, direct contact. I mean, sometimes in bigger systems, you're talking to so many different levels of people before you actually get the, before the doctor actually gets the message. And it's just having a little bit of a smaller space where you just know that we're all kind of communicating within the same office space. And, and uh, if messages need to be heard, that they're heard relatively fast. Right. So you're, you're leaving a left in the process of whatever, <laughs> leaving the, the large healthcare system. We never specifically mentioned what systems we're in. Someone could figure it out if they wanted to, but essentially it's, we're talking about all these systems are pretty much the same as far as the, yeah. the, the model that they, uh, that they deliver care yeah. is very similar, right? You either have a large multi-specialty physician group or you've got a single specialty group, but you're within a larger system. And so you self-refer within the system and that's encouraged in laboratories and all that stuff is sort of piled into one. But essentially, the way you practice is pretty similar, and it's again a few. You have a certain amount of time for each 
patient, right? And there's a certain amount of patients you're supposed to get through in the day in order to capture the revenue you need right. to, to make to make pay the bills, right? Right. Because it's a volume based business for the most part. Right. The more patient if you don't see any patients, you don't make any money versus a membership based, which is what you're talking about, model where you don't have to see fifty people in a day. You if everyone's paying a certain amount and they can see you in other ways asymmetrically or at least in person or you know right i mean I, I think the membership model allows you just to overall have to carry less patients you know i think in some of these bigger s- systems pa- doctors have to carry a couple thousand patients right. usually to to make their quota for their overhead or whatever you know sort of insurance payment plan has been made up but we're hoping you know to carry much much less than that so people feel like they can get in to see us if they're sick and actually see me Right versus having, um, I mean, I I feel as though sometimes um, patients call and then they'll be booked for appointments and we don't with other people we don't even know that they're sick or what's sure. going on and and as you know in medicine I mean when you're taking care of a sick person it's not you can't diagnose off of that snapshot right it's the story it's sure. the history and it's the process of how someone got sick and so a lot of times it seemed as though. You know, people saw one person and they got a snapshot, then they saw someone else, and then that was another picture. And and you're like, that's what a primary care doctor's job is, is to put all this together and help people either fix whatever problems there or, you know, prevent illness in the future. And a lot of that is who that person is as a person. What's their cultural and ethnic background? What are their kind of beliefs about medicine? Mm-hmm. And then incorporating all of that into what's available for us in modern medicine and in some other you know, maybe ideas about, you know, less traditional holistic methods that are safe and coming up with a good plan that the patient agrees with. Do you, so that continuity that you, that you don't feel like you had in the pre- previous system, is that something in when you're a resident, you have better continuity, do you think, than as a, than when you're in private practice out, out of training? Interestingly, I think I did. I yeah, think I did I have better the case. continuity in my our residency program. Yeah. And do you think that's, uh, is that because of just the way the models are run? Or do you think it's just because those people in residency, you know, I mean, let's be honest, most people who go to residency clinics are people who right. can't get care anywhere else, right? right. They're like, right. you don't care if they come for, for no for no money or you're playing Medicaid. <laughs> they don't care if they because, saw a doctor that literally was not a doctor like right. a month ago. <laughs> exactly. Right. Uh, do you think that's part of the reason? I mean, that just. I, you know. I'm not sure. I, I'm going to guess some of it is the volume of patients, right? Because if you're not a seasoned physician, they don't hand you like a 2,000 patient load, right? <laughs> right I, yeah. I, I think yeah, that sure. is part of it, that it's just volume and and time. And um, I mean, I think your mind space isn't quite as bogged down with things. And so you just have the availability to see patients to patients. Yeah. And I think actually people who go into academics and training programs are great. They're great, smart people. And I think they do a really good job of trying to keep that continuity. I mean, during our training program, they restructured the clinic schedule all the time and they tried to come up with different plans so that residents could see patients frequently. And so I think they're really smart people that are trying to come up with different mm-hmm. plans for for how, how the residents can keep that continuity. And then you kind of go out into the real world where, you know, different people are running the show, different priorities, and it gets a little thrown off. Yeah. All right. So you're moving to a new model, which is membership-based, at least in part, right? Not yeah. entirely. I Not mean, entirely. I, some parts you of the membership Yeah, right. So you have some, I don't know what we'll call it. I don't even call it hybrid model. I, there, I like there's to say there's, there's different, different paths. Yeah. I, right? I mean, I think so. I think, you yeah. know, 
we oftentimes look to try and explain things away as like a, a one system or you want to, you want easy explanation for it, for yeah. what it is, or descriptor, I yeah. suppose is a better term. Yeah. And we oftentimes don't, right? I mean, sometimes it, it's not really hybrid. It's just like, we're going to find different ways of, of meeting whatever need. Maybe you only, you, you know, you only need three months of, you know, care, whatever. We're just yeah. going to find it. We'll have a package for you. Yeah. That's going to work it. Yeah. I mean, I, I think for instance, we have a path for, um, our weight, uh, our medical weight management, which we call true weight journey. Um, that if you want to keep your primary care doctor, you can do that. And for a small yearly fee, we'll see you, you know, like three or four times sure. just to talk about medications, quick touchdowns, really kind of circle back around just about weight management things. That's our, you know, one of our least expensive, um, options, um, after you've been sort of through one of the, the other weight management programs and we're trying to keep pathways open for people so that they feel like they have avenues to communicate with, communicate with us, but also, you know, keep the lights on and, and keep the doors open. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah. I mean that ultimately you still have to pay the bills, right? Yeah. You have to pay yeah. the staff. How is, um, well, I guess what is, what does the research say as far as weight management programs? Like what do you, what makes, what makes a, what makes a program successful? Because I mean, I think about it amount of time, even in this program, the amount of time you actually have with someone is pretty small. Like, you know, you're yeah. not there when they're ordering lunch or when they're yeah. most of the day, right? Yeah. You might see them once every other week, which is quite frequent. Yeah. And that's really hardly any time to sort yeah. of come up a plan. So how do you sort of manage this so that it, things work? Yeah, it's very interesting. I think there's only one piece of data that is probably the strongest, which is touchdowns. The more people touch down with providers, the better off they do. I, I mean, know what does that mean. I like, mean, I mean, I think football. Interaction. Okay, all right. Touch, okay. I'm sorry. Like touch, touch bases. Touch. Like, gotcha. Okay. You know, I was thinking so, football. It's yeah, almost I'm football sorry, season. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're almost there. Yeah. <laughs> no, the more people interact with a provider, a health coach, you know, a nurse, or any sort of person that's sort of coaching them along or helping them along, the better they do. I mean, even patients in these drug trials that are just on the placebo yet tend to still lose weight, which is actually kind of amazing. Right. Right. And so, um, I think anything that you can do to keep the avenues open of communication between the, the practice and the patient, I think is going to be helpful. Sure. And then with when the weight management program, I mean, what is, what exactly is involved? Cause we mentioned already that you're not going to have all those people in house. So right. they're just, yeah. coming, they're coming to see you. Yeah. And I imagine you're developing a plan or working with them to sort of figure things out. So what, what's healthy and what sort of, how do you, yeah. Get so, to there? so how we get started is, um, we sort of break it down to three things. First is, you know, meals, which is your nutrition and sure. trying to do, um, optimize their food choices. So when I think of making a good food choice, I think of three things. The first thing is education, right? What is healthy eating for you? right? What is, uh, what food should I have? What food should I not have? Right. Timing of food. Should I, you know, should I do intermittent fasting? Should I not? Should I snack all day? Right. And trying to find educating on on all those different factors. Second is logistics. Again, how do you cook it? How do I afford it? How do I make it tasty? How do, where do I get it in Michigan? That's a problem in February trying to find vegetables. Right. And the last thing is ability, meaning if I gave you something that you believed and I, you and I both believed was healthy every meal, I don't know, it's Friday, it's pizza and beer night, right? right? Or you had <laughs> a bad right, day. Right. What are you going to do? Learning to deal with those social situations, those emotional situations, and, and better understanding of that. 
And the second thing we do for people is mindset, which goes to a lot of ability, making sure people aren't suffering from underlying depression, anxiety, really dealing with their coping skills. We do a lot with mindful, excuse me, mindfulness, mindfulness-based eating awareness training or MBEAT, right? Which deals a lot with mindful eating and learning to feel kind of how our emotions are pulling us and our cravings are pulling us in one direction or another and how not to lean on food for coping. And then medications, taking away medicines that are weight gainers and then adding medicines if we need to, to help people lose weight if they meet that criteria. How often do you find the, the medication? So are you putting, are these like actual weight loss medications? Or are you yeah, talking about medications just medications that are FDA approved? Like a Fen-Fen sort of fentermine or something like that? Uh, or, I mean, no one probably uses, well, I shouldn't say no one. I do have seen patients recently on that. but Yeah, so so I think what you're alluding to is fentermine, yeah. which is um, used for weight loss. It's actually another part of a combo pill called Qsimia, which mm. is with Topamax or okay. Topiramate, yep. fentermine, uh, Topiramate or Qsimia. And then there's the new drug called Wacovi that just got approved, which is okay. a GPL-1 agonist. It's very exciting. It's the, the data is very good. People are losing up to like 20% of their body weight, which is really exciting. Where does that work? So um, it's we've been using these drugs for a long time for diabetes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, the like GLP-1s yeah, okay. agonist. And um, so basically how it works is when we eat, there's hormones that leave our GI tract and basically tell our body that there's energy here, right? Sure. Go to our brain or like, look, don't eat anymore. We have food here. It mimics one of these hormones. And so it goes to people's brains and it basically disassociates that call for food. People feel less hungry. They feel full faster and they tend to eat less food. And so that, that kind of medication is only going to be effective if you convince someone that to only eat when you're like have reason to eat, right? Because like if people are like, oh, I'm just bored. But see, this is the thing which is so interesting is people just really stop doing that. It's, it's, I know that it sounds bizarre to think about, but I just have had people that are, that will come back after being on. So the, one of the other drugs that is a GLP-1 agonist is Sexenda, which I've used frequently. Mm-hmm. The Wacovi it's relatively new, like within the last two months. So okay. I haven't sure. seen a ton of people follow back around with, uh, after starting Wacovi, but on Sexenda, uh, people just tend to say, I, do you not think about food? Like, is this how people think about food or not think about food? Like food consumed my thoughts and now it's gone. And which is just sort of very interesting. And uh, that's how it works. And I, I feel like when it comes to nutrition, you know, I hear people say, well, you need to know what to eat. Um, is there really that much confusion for people to not know what's healthy food? Like, yeah. like I think most people know like vegetables are probably a good idea. Yeah, yeah. And Hooray for eating, vegetables, yeah. And not ice cream, probably not so much, yeah, right? right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I think um, it's funny. I, I think at the I think it's a bit of a spectrum, right? So we know what's totally bad. A lot of, most people do, right? Like no one would be like Cheeto cheese puffs are right. healthy, right? And then for the most part, we know ideally what we should be eating, okay. right? Like I should be mostly eating these things. The problem is, what do you do in the middle? Meaning, I don't know your kids have soccer and you don't have time to get all the veggies and you don't have any grass fed beef or whatever fancy thing that we need. Right. What do I do in the middle? Do I go, you know, do I go like, uh, do I go to McDonald's and throw away the, and just have a hamburger and throw away the buns? Or am I just going to go have, you know, like a pasta bowl? Like what, like what direction should I sort of go in? And I think that helping people kind of navigate through these times when you don't have a perfect plan kind of laid out is imperative and kind of coming up with plan. I, I always tell people we, you need plan A, which is like you're going your own green beans and like 
baking your own bread and like making your own almond milk, right? Then there's plan B, which is like, ah, I got most of the ingredients, but I'm mostly cooking at home, right? Then there's plan C, which is like, oh, well, I don't know. I'm getting some pre-made salads and, you know, maybe a rotisserie chicken or something from the grocery store that's already right. packaged, but for the, I'm putting it together. And then there's like plan D, meaning I'm in an airport or I'm at the, the base of, you know, the McDonald's checkout line or in the drive-thru what am I going to eat and kind of running through all those different scenarios to tell people they're never going to be in plan D. It's just unrealistic and unfair just because our worlds are so busy and the, our food system is just hard to navigate. And so you just have to keep getting kind of anticipating that those things are coming and then being self forgiving when they do. And you're not always going to make a good decision. Sometimes Cinnabon's the only place that's open, right? (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, when it comes to movement, exercise, and stuff like that, what do you you yeah. say you tailor that with certain with particular people? Because obviously, someone who's got you know knee replacements are not going to be running right. or something, yeah. right? Yeah, I, mean, I think that one of the biggest barriers is joint pain, for sure, right? People who have really bad osteoarthritis. But I think about exercise, and very interestingly, generationally, people have very different opinions. Like, for instance, women who are in their seventies. I really have a hard time convincing that they should be sweating. It's just something that's just <laughs> not going to happen, you know? And yeah. um, it's just very interesting versus people who sometimes come in their 30s. I almost have to get them to slow down. Like they're doing like crazy boot camps and hit exercises and they're almost like stressing their body out too much, particularly for women. I see that a lot. So, and that's like the spectrum of in between. So I think of exercise in four ways. There's cardio right hands on our hips sweating yep there's strength training which is like lifting weights there's flexibility training which is like yoga pilates balance exercises and then there's something called neat which is actually not exercise but non-exercise activity thermogenesis this is movement right going for a walk i don't know cleaning your windows dancing mowing the lawn right okay and i sort of think about adding it in reverse order so you gotta move Right. If you're sitting all day on a computer at your job and then you come home and watch Netflix for four hours, we got to do something. Right. Start going for walks, start using the stairs, start moving. Next is stretching. Right. A lot of people have neck pain, joint pain, back pain. You got to stretch, you know, heat it up, stretch out, feel a way to get a little bit looser. Then adding in strength training. And then lastly, trying to do crazy cardio where you're like really sweating and, you know, adding in hours on the treadmill. What do you think is the most important part of all that? Like if, you, if, or do you have to do all of them? Do you think it's, I think you do what people want to do. Right. So, I mean, I'm a, I have three kids and I mean, I'm not working out. I mean, the recommendation is like 150 minutes a week. To like uh, yeah, I know. Keep your main, of I feel like I walk 150 minutes a week at least. Right. So I'm like, I'm probably getting some cardio there. Right. I know. So I don't think I quit quite hit the 150 of cardio, but I, I do some strength training, right? And so if, if a mom comes to me like, look, all I got is 20 minutes twice a week, I'm like, fine, lift weights, take your kids out and go play with them in the park and do these, like, you know, if it, I only have isolated of 20 minutes, then it's like, then move, take your kids out to the park, go for a walk, get your family moving, right? Do jumping jacks while they're playing and, and just keep going and be okay with that and see if that works. You know, find the barriers that are preventing you from doing those things and let's talk them out and and be honest. And I think, honestly, for exercise in particular, it really is working with your partner to kind of find that balance of being like, you know, 
I'm going to work out in the, I'm working out Monday, Wednesday, you're working out Tuesday, Thursday, and we're doing this, right? We're going to get healthier together. Cause yeah. I, I think sometimes it can get a little one-sided if a partner comes in and they're like, I'm going to be in the gym three hours every week. And the other person's sort of like, okay, like, you know, it kind of has to be a little bit of a communication and a, and, um, an open conversation about what works with the family, what doesn't work and kind of finding those different barriers. Yeah, I know. So I talked, when I talked to Jason Fung, we, we talked about intermittent fasting. So I decided to just try fasting and, yeah. and it was surprisingly easy. I think I thought it'd be really it's hard. shockingly easy. Like I'm it? like, yeah. Oh, I just basically just didn't eat. I yeah. mean, it's, I got hungry for a little bit and then I went away and you know, and so I was doing it like 36 hours. So yeah. I would just, wow. yeah. I, cause I thought I wonder if I could do it. It was sort of yeah. like a, right. not like, look, I'm not climbing mountains. Right. I was just, <laughs> yeah. I could not eat for a while. Right. But it became really difficult from a social standpoint. Like, you yeah. know, I'm sitting at the table and I'm eating, well, I'm not eating anything and right. I'm just sitting at the table, everyone's talking and I'm like drinking a glass of water. And so socially it became really complicated. So yeah. I, well now I just make it so I just eat once a day. Yeah. Except on weekends because then with the whole family. Now and you're then, having breakfast, right? Saturday breakfast, whatever. With your yeah. Family. Right. I yeah. mean, so I, so it just like, yeah, it, that's what, and the nice thing is it doesn't matter, but is that sort of like what you, what do you recommend for people doing? I mean, when it comes to stuff like that, do you, you is that part of the, of is that the part of the working out making sure it fits your schedule and making sure you fits things? I mean, I think for, I, I think it's just finding, being honest with ourselves and finding things that work and make sense and then kind of keep pushing it to meeting whatever goals and expectations you have. You know, that's one of our aspects of our program is we try to help people kind of present up front where they want to be. Right. So if your goal is that you want to run a marathon, but you only plan on running once a week, it's probably, you're probably not going to meet that goal. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so it's really having women come in, talk about what goals they want in a couple of different facets of health, and then kind of laying out a very clear plan of if that's obtainable and, and how we can get from point A to point B. And then we provide the resources that we need to get there. And now you've, you focus, you've talked all about women because that you're, it's a women's clinic that you're yeah. going to be joined, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. uh, but I assume now you're not just doing women's. So now my right? practice, I right. see you do, you do men and women, men yeah. and women. Uh -huh. probably more women than men is my guess for weight loss. Is that, uh, is that accurate? Actually, no, that's actually probably not accurate. Not accurate. Uh, so maybe like 60, 40. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. I, would, I yeah. wouldn't think it's like 70, 30, but I would say yeah. it's, it still skews towards women. Uh, how are they different? I mean, than, than men. Yeah. Like what's it, what's the difference? I mean, we're obviously in the United States, so that's, I'm sure there are lots of cultural differences. Yeah. Yeah. Like motivation. Um, it's unfortunately very unfair for women because I will have men that come in and make some small changes and really lose a lot of weight quickly. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, you have patients who are like, I just stopped drinking soda and I've lost 30 pounds. And you're like, Oh my gosh, that really don't tell your wife. <laughs> um, I think that's one of the differences is that when men get it right, it tends to be easy. I'm like, if they're, moving and eating what their body wants, then weight comes off, right? Versus women, with doc as Dr. Bittner has alluded to, there's a lot of hormonal issues right. that sometimes women are like, I am eating very healthy and I work out a lot. Why is this weight not coming off? And that's one of the challenges that we have with women is that there are sometimes different hormonal issues, stress, sleeping patterns, you know, their phase of ovarian function that can prevent them from getting to their weight goals. And so that's why you need, it's more than just medication is more than exercise. There's, there's more involved in than just oh, yeah. a few things, right? Yeah. yeah. Diving deep into kind of all this different stuff yeah. that make up a person. It is interesting. I mean, this is totally unrelated yet yeah. sort of related in that I do nerve blocks and uh, people for bowel surgery. And so it's a trans abdominal plane block. So tap blocks. We basically just put it between the, uh, 
two muscle layers in there, the, tran- the uh, transverse abdominis and then their uh, internal obliques. Anyway, that's where the nerves run. They sort of like your intercostal nerves okay. in your abdomen. But it's really interesting because when I do the ultrasound scan, because you have to do it on ultrasound, uh, the weight distribution is so dramatically different between men and women. Mm-hmm. Like I'll have guys with gigantic bellies. like, mm-hmm. And then I do the block and their muscles maybe like uh, half an inch or an inch under their skin. I mean, mm-hmm. they're... They're almost all deconditioned, all these people, so they don't have mm-hmm. big muscles. Mm-hmm. And the women, it's like a mile down because it's all subcutaneous. It's like the, the men's fat mm-hmm. is generally uh, intra-abdominal. fat, yeah. And for mm-hmm. women, it tends to be, you know, yeah. extra-abdominal or whatever. Which I, I think is, I mean, I think we know, but I don't think it's thought as much in the medical community. I mean, these are all different pathways of gaining weight, right? So right. when we say weight and fat, there's, it's they're all different pathways. Yeah, sure. And so... Um, men do tend to have a lot more visceral fat, which is kind of the bigger belly that we see, mm-hmm. which is fat around the organs. And that's why I think you make, it's usually dietary changes, right? So you're eating the wrong things, your liver's unhappy, it's not doing the right things, and then you get all, you know, develop insulin resistance, and then you get fat kind of around your organs. So I think as time goes on, I hope and pray that we'll recognize these pathways more and that we'll be able to have more formal diagnosis and have more tests that we can say, oh, this is what it is. This is the medicine treatment plan or you need more nutritional treatment plan and kind of these different phases versus just the, you know, eat less, move more kind of mantra. Right. So that's always been the traditional thing, right? Like, yeah. you know, the elf diet, right? Eat less food. Um, what do you, how do you approach people when they come in? Like a woman comes in, she said, I've got 20 pounds I absolutely need to lose. Yeah. I've been trying for three, four years. I've tried, you know, yeah. a couple pills. I tried diet shakes or whatever. I right, mean, right, right. I mean, I'm sure people have tried all these things before they come to a doctor, right? Yeah, they do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, sometimes, sometimes people come in completely fresh, you know, like they're sort of like, oh, I didn't know I needed to lose weight. So how long is your initial assessment? Is it like an hour? Do you sit down with Yeah, them? we sit with people for an hour, and that's really how long it takes, I think, to learn about someone learn about their relationship with food, learn about different aspects of their life that are really important. So very interestingly, people who have gone through major traumas actually have a harder time losing weight and actually have changes in their hypothalamus that probably change their energy set point. So um, that will prevent them from getting to their weight goals. And so sometimes it's helpful just to understand how, um, how different things in their life have affected them and kind of understanding what different medicines they're on and why and seeing if we can make changes in an appropriate and safe way. So it takes about an hour to kind of collect all that information and then coming up with a plan because you want a plan that makes sense and that the patient agrees with. Sure. You know, and, and that's where a lot of that motivational interviewing comes in. And how do you coordinate with, because you presume you're not doing all the primary care for the, for the patient, right? I mean, so they're, they're on hypertensive medications, they're on some thyroid yeah. medication, whatever, the yeah. other things. Yeah. It's always dangerous as specialists, right? Just kind of tossing people on drugs, taking them off drugs. I yeah. Mean, how do you well, how do you sort of manage that with other other physicians? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the fun things about being an internist is that's what we do. <laughs> sure. Okay. <laughs> We're sort of the quarterbacks of all those things, yeah. and I'm pretty skilled in doing all that stuff anyway. And so you make adjustments as needed and as we see fit. So. I think that's one of the great things about being an internist and having a background or being doing obesity medicine and being an internist is that I feel pretty comfortable managing all those things, but it takes time, right? To make all those choices. I'm sorry, make all those decisions and talk them out with patients in a safe way. And then, I mean, I guess the other question is like, if they have a, the regular doctor, I always hear that question. I'm like, I think it's funny. They say, my doctor. No, they always, they say, well, my regular doctor, you know, whatever. Uh, Anyway, (laughs) 
<laughs> like, well, my I'm regular doctor, doctor. <laughs> this is a surgeon here. Right, right, Lots right. Lots of doctors all over. We're yeah. regular. I mean, I don't yeah. know. We're, we're irregular. Unless we're yeah. Um, so we, they probably have someone there coming from their primary, their normal yeah. primary care. So oh, you you're not assuming, we're acting as a consultant. You're not assuming yeah. this, the, the role of the primary care now usually, are you? If or, people want to. I mean, we that's are what you do. A true. I mean, we have a primary care path. If that's what you want oh, okay. and, and you want help with all those different things, we're here to help you. Okay. Yeah. So they can just get the whole the whole package. The whole package, place. yeah. And then do you do you look at your practice? Well, I mean, you haven't started yet, so yeah, <laughs> catch you in a year. But pretty much just local. Is this something that you see yourself uh, not franchising? But is this like a pathway you yeah. see? Yeah, I mean, because I, it's not. I don't. I feel like it's it's yeah. new, right? I mean, it's not something that a lot of people are doing. Yeah, I do think it's new. I think that kind of this model of um, well, I mean, multi specialty practices aren't new. Well, which sure, is basically right. what we have, but. Um, I think focusing on um, particularly women's health in a multi-specialty way I think is new. I think our focus on wellness is very new, right, of getting women to, um, you know, sit down, review their goals, and providing a very organized structural plan for them. And I think that when you take it from a position of wellness and it's patient-driven is different than you're coming in I'm checking my box. Like I have the boxes to check of making sure I check all the different things that need to be done. And then the visit's over. Right. I think that is new. And so, you know, I, I, I think time will tell. I think we're trying to help as many women as we possibly can. And we hope that people will kind of embrace the different aspects of true, which, you know, I, I know you review with Dr. Bittner, but um, sort of our insight into reviewing our subject, reviewing women's subjective symptoms with seeds, and our different plans that we call waypoints is kind of a new process. Right. And so then finally, the word healthy comes up in these conversations all the time, right? What does it mean to be healthy? Because everyone always says, "Well, I want to be healthy." Yeah. But, I mean, what is healthy? I mean, do I, I mean well, I how think, do you define it? I think that that's how a patient defines it. Right. I okay. Think a patient decides what they believe is to be healthy and we kind of help them get to that goal. Now, we may help adjust some of that based off of, you know, different labs or markers. But honestly, I think that a, pa- a patient really makes that decision as to what they think is for them is going to be the healthiest for them, the healthiest path for them. And Cheetos in no way is involved in the healthy lifestyle. Not. Right. Probably not. But it is a treat. I mean, like, I mean, it's one of those things where. I always say you control the food. You don't let food control you, right? So if you're like, I'm having Cheetos today, right? And you have your cup of Cheetos and you enjoy the heck out of it. What can I say? Now, being, you know, you had a terrible day and you're arm deep in Cheetos and all of a sudden half the bag's gone, that's food controlling you. That's not you controlling your Cheeto consumption. So, you know, I, I always say, I mean, to say that someone isn't going to have dessert ever again is kind of a crappy way to live, yeah, right? Like, I yeah. mean, to not to say that you have no outlets for enjoying any of those things, I don't think is realistic, but we have to have that as part of the plan. So part of our plan, we try to have avenues for, we call them treats. So things that wouldn't be necessarily considered a super healthy food, but still able to fit into the plan. You are allowed to live. You are allowed, you are allowed to live. Like I said, you control the food the food does not control you okay yeah um all right so patients want to get a hold of you or find out more about you you guys where do they find you on social media yeah websites, so we're where, on where? our true women's health is on um is on facebook and we have facebook lives every wednesday which we um are free for our um patients and then our website is truewomenshealth.com 
and um, yeah, we have a Facebook group, and I think we also have a Twitter. And we're hoping to expand more into TikTok and Twitter when I get started. So funny. I mean, I don't know how Instagram works. I have actually an Instagram <laughs> account, yeah. but I, I don't get it. I've tried. Yeah. I don't TikTok. Uh, but I like how you just like, I think I have a Twitter account. I'm not sure. <laughs> right? That's You are clearly not very, very, well, I don't know. Maybe young people aren't on Twitter now. Are they? Is I that, think is they're Twitter's? moving away from Twitter. Right. I, as my nanny says, it's no one looks at Twitter. It's all about TikTok. Like Facebook is pretty much perfect demographics for you guys because that's pretty yeah. much women who are in their 40s and 50s yeah. and you know, maybe late yeah. 30s, right? Yeah. But um, all right. Well, uh, Dr. Egan, it's been a, it's been a pleasure. Um, I look forward to seeing what happens with you in the future. And thanks so much for being yeah, on the show. Yeah, hopefully we can come back with a success report. Well, I'd love to actually hear that for how you and Diana are doing because, um, you know, I caught her right before she started, or mm-hmm. maybe she just started, and now I'm catching you right before you start, too. Yeah. So, yeah, you have to come back, and you're like, well, this is our empire we built. Just want yeah. you to know, <laughs> just know about it. <laughs> uh, yeah, hopefully you won't have one of our former doctors. It's like, this is a giant empire that I can't, I have right. to get away from. <laughs> it's so big, I just can't, I, it's I've so lost big. control. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, thanks right. so much. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye. Thanks again to Dr. Egan. And before we go, let's give another shout-out to our sponsor, CareCloud. Don't let bad billing processes keep you from your hard-earned revenue. CareCloud's free revenue cycle assessment uncovers billing mistakes so you can see how to claim every last dollar. Get your free assessment by visiting drpodcastnetwork.com slash carecloud. Again, that's drpodcastnetwork.care. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what the doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash the paradox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com.